Welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast, making health and safety as important as everything else we do in business. Hi there, it's Colin Nottage here, and welcome to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. This week, I am joined by Dr. David Proven. David uh, is an Australian. Um, he is being heavily involved in uh, in the work that comes out of uh, Griffith University, Sydney Decker. Um, he runs a podcast with uh, um, with Dr. Drew Ray, um, the Safety of Work podcast, and I really recommend that you check that out. They're, um, they've got between 30 and 40 episodes out at the moment, but each one is just a, a really interesting uh, episode that goes into some of the research behind uh, behind improving health and safety performance. Really, really fascinating. Um, David also uh, is a director at um, Forge, uh, Forge Works, um, and they provide, uh, you know, support into businesses across the world um, you know at all different levels um, very very much focused on uh, interaction with people in the workplace and uh, you know <laughs> people being the solution not the problem anyway um, I'd love to hand you over to uh, to David I'd be I consider myself a career safety professional so it's the only job I've ever done in my adult life I went from school to university and studied psychology and health and safety and then went and got a graduate position in in the railways and then just worked my way through my safety career into senior management positions in engineering construction companies, moved into oil and gas. Uh, Actually, I I started in the oil and gas industry as the head of safety only about a month after the Macondo well blowout in 2010. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction to oil and gas. And it was around that time that I, I was probably reflecting on the first 10 or 12 years of my career and was sort of wondering the value that the safety profession was contributing. And I started exploring some of these ideas around safety and, and contemporary thinking around safety. And Sydney Decker had just moved out to Australia. And so I kind of went from there. I sort of um, pivoted my career. I went back to university and did a PhD and started a consulting business about three years ago where we uh, we work with clients, a whole range of um, services, safety-related services and operational risk services. But really what we try to do is just meet companies where they're at and help them take the next step forward uh, as kind of as respectful and uh, non-judgmentally as we can. That's, uh, that, I, love, I love that last bit that you say there. You know, it's... Um... You know, because it's 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 not about it's not about judging, is it? It's you know we are where we are on this journey, and and um, and that's what it is. You know, there's there's you know it's just a continual journey, isn't it, to try and get get better and better. So you know, so so how do you how do you sort of go about doing that thing? You know, sort of finding out where businesses are, and you know, and so that you can then help them put together the the, the, the sort of the process to move forward. Yeah. So one of the things that I suppose is a big part of research is. Um, is to be descriptive rather than being normative. So try to tell companies what is happening as opposed to what maybe we as consultants think should be happening because no one kind of likes being told what they should be doing um, unless they believe that they should be doing something different. So that's kind of the approach that we try to take. We we never really liked the traditional cultural maturity assessments, which says you're here on the ladder and we think you should be here on the ladder. Okay. So what we try to do is diagnose businesses in a very descriptive way we just this is what it is, uh, and and it's not right or wrong. It's just this is this is where where you're at. This is where your people are at, and then you can work with the management teams to say, is are you happy with that, or mm-hmm. would you like to be different in some areas, and what areas are those, and then we can kind of help you chart a way to 
you know, for you to be able to change your businesses, because consultants can't change businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, people inside businesses have to change businesses. So we um, we try to do that. And the good thing is most of the people, all the people in, in our business have spent more time inside organisations than they have in consulting roles. So they they know what it's like to be, you know, managing the day-to-day reality inside companies. It's um, I mean, it's great. It's great to have that that background, isn't it? From you know, from being being in there in the thick of it, and uh, you know, and under understanding, you know, sort of how how businesses work, because um, you know, like I say, coming 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 in, you know, without having that, you know, can you know, you you end up you, you end up just uh, sometimes, you know, just going for you know what can make us some money, you know, which is uh, you know, which isn't which isn't what it's about from people in our profession, you know, it's about making a difference with the people, isn't it? Yeah, and absolutely. It's about making a difference. And, you know, I say to a number of people when they call me, like, you know, I've sat on sat on your side of the table and, you know, what, what we want to do in our business is be the sort of people that we always wish that we could talk to when we were on the other side of the table. So, you know, the number of times I get a phone call and I'll end up just giving someone an hour or two of of thoughts and advice and and letting them conclude that they don't they don't need a consultant. They don't they don't need us. They you know, with a little bit of direction and advice, they can kind of do what they need to get done themselves. Um, mm. So we try to provide a lot of a lot of advice to people, and then people who really need us, then we we sort of um, you know that becomes the work that we do. Mm. That's that's really interesting. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the philosophies I've I've always had in 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 my business is you you're trying to work yourself out of the business. You know, so you know we go in and we do some support, but ultimately we've got to be out of the business so that the business can can take things on itself but it sounds like you're doing you're doing a lot more of that work right at the start of the process and really you know really getting them getting them to understand you know i suppose the strengths that they have got i mean that's what it sounds like yeah look we do do that and and i suppose we 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 talk about building capability inside the organization so that they can self manage and mm-hmm. cuz i always find it a little bit strange if an organization's got you know, a really big health and safety department, then it sort of sidelines that department and goes and hires and pays a lot of money to get health and safety consultants. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go, well, something something must kind of be broken in that model. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's always going to be times where you need a specialist skill set uh, that you don't have in-house and that should happen in every functional discipline in the business. But it seems to happen too much in health and safety where companies go outside for stuff that they should be able to get from their internal health and safety team. So we always talk about, and I think that makes us a little bit more attractive to companies, um, is that we always talk about working with the health and safety teams and building mm-hmm. their capability and capacity in those teams and co-designing uh, solutions with them. We don't bring off-the-shelf um, services. And, you know, I think at least at, from a, from safety directors within organisations, I think they sort of value that approach. Yeah, it's it's so important to have that that collaborative that collaborative side of things. Yeah. So, I mean, Australia is a it's a real it's a real hotbed of uh, of sort of, of forward thinking, isn't it? I mean, it's just you know the people that I have had the opportunity to to chat with are um it's always six o'clock in the morning when I ring them. <laughs> oh, for you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. this is a perfect. This is. Yeah, this is three pm. Three pm in the afternoon for me, so this is a perfect time to do something like this. But I feel for you getting up at that time. It's absolutely no problem. I have, I've had a cup of tea, but I um I haven't had before English breakfast yet. I'll uh, I'll have that a bit later. <laughs> perfect. Look, I think Australia. Um, 
it's, I mean, we're a small country by by population, and it's probably a little bit easy to be a big fish in a small pond. You know, there's 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 not a lot of overcrowding in the space. Um, we've been fortunate to have someone like Sydney Decker in the country for um, for a decade almost, um, and and you know, I think there is a there is a collection of people in Australia who have really tried to champion the safety profession and and gather evidence for new ideas and 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 support them in in their businesses so yeah quite fortunate to be here but there's people all over the world i did a podcast with um a guy in brazil this morning we've talked to people in the us people in the uk um mm-hmm. you know there's people in asia there's 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 people trying to um critically critically evaluate what's being done in health and safety and and whether it's adding value to the people who are exposed to the risk. And I think that's the only thing we can ask that people do that critical evaluation. This, um, you know, this, this doing this podcast, I mean, I've been doing it about a year now and, um, you know, I've learned, I've learned so much, you know, and it's just been absolutely fascinating just chatting to people and, you know, and, and just getting their, getting their, their views and their opinions and their ideas. And it just, just makes you a better person. And, you know, and if, and I suppose, you know, one of the aims that we've got for this is just to, if, if if part of if, if I'm learning, then I'm just hoping that the people that are that are, that are taking the time to listen are learning as well. And if and if we can achieve that, then that's absolutely wonderful. Absolutely. So yeah, so that, absolutely. As you're, you know, because you're you're in you're, you're a little bit younger in your journey from a podcast perspective than myself. Um, was it about 35, 36 episodes, something like that? Is that right? Or is it a bit more than that? Yeah, a few fewer than that. Um, but yeah, seven or eight months into our journey. Okay, and how's that, how's that going then? So the podcast is going really well. Um, one of the things that the biggest revelation to me during my PhD research, because my research was into the role of the safety professional, it was it was yeah. about you know does the role how how does the role perform its functions today within organisations and is that going to be appropriate for the future and how consistent is that with uh, the safety science evidence and um, and the emerging safety theory. Um, there's a lot of questions in there and there's probably a whole nother podcast, but one of the big takeouts was that we don't really have much of an approach within the profession to evidence-based practice. Um, so I did seven months of interviews with safety professionals. I followed them around. I looked at the activities they were performing, the advice they were providing their organization and asking them to asking them to explain to me, you know, why they were approaching their work in that way. And, you know, not in one of those conversations did someone say, look, well, I'm doing it this way because in my context, in this situation, the safety science research shows that, you know, this intervention or this approach is going to be, you know, most likely to be successful or effective. There was almost this complete absence of an empirical in driving safety professional work. Mm-hmm. And so we always get the normal things. I can't access the journals or, you know, the articles aren't practical enough. So um, Drew Ray, uh, Dr. Drew Ray at, Griffith University, who was one of my PhD supervisors, had done a really, what I thought was a fantastic podcast called DisasterCast, where there's a back catalogue of about 60 episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. Started at his time when he was at the University of York in the UK. Um, But so we got together and said, look, how about we try to provide this this medium for disseminating safety science research in in a kind of practical way and in a format where people, you know, practitioners might consume it. So that sort of spawn the podcast and we've been at it every week for just over 30 or 33 weeks or something now and each 
each week we ask a ask a question and we go look at some research papers and we spend half an hour to an hour on trying to um, provide some guidance for practitioners and and you know the feedback's been really positive, which is nice. No, it's um, I mean, I mean, it's great. You know, I love I love listening to it. You know, and I think it's just a really really insightful. You know, really really just a really interesting listen. And I think that's one of the beauties, isn't it? You you know when you um. When you do the podcast, you, you, you're right in the people's ears, you know, so you're, you're right there, you know, you're right there. And, uh, um, you know, and it's just it's just a wonderful, a wonderful way to communicate for me. And, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so, you know, absolutely, absolutely great. You did a really good piece about, um, um, you know, I think it was like the, the eight traits or whatever it is of the uh, of the safety professional. And I just wondered if we could through, chat through some of those, you know, I think this must have come out of your out of your research. But um. You, you talked about focusing on the work and not on the safety process. Can you can you explain that a little bit? What you what you mean by that? The safety the safety profession would approach their view of the world looking through the lens of safety. So it's like, is this person complying with my safety process or not complying, or is this a safe behaviour or an unsafe behaviour? Or yeah, you know, looking at looking at work through the the lens of safety. And I, I kind of think that our starting point as safety professionals needs to be to understand the work. So work becomes the object of understanding. And it's kind of not necessarily our call to say whether it's safe or unsafe. It's our responsibility to kind of learn about how work happens and then engage with the people who know about that work to understand why it happens. You know, these ideas of local rationality and so on. I think, I think the safety profession really needs to um, be far more inquisitive than it has been in the past. So I try to tell people, you know, put down, put down your your ideas about what should be happening. Put down your safe your safety procedure. Um, put down your categories and all your tools, and just understand why people are doing things the way that they are. And if you think it shouldn't be like that, engage them in a conversation. Um, and I think I think that's 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 what I mean when I talk about you know the focus on work as opposed to the focus on you know maybe a safety process or something like that. Because I think it's um you know it's 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 always interesting going into organisations and and you see you see the the the, the cl- I think clutter I think is one of the things that, uh, that you talk about as well in the in the business but but you know the documents and the stuff that's put together it, it is very very rarely put together for the for the for the person who's doing the job you know it's almost it's almost put together isn't it to 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 satisfy the 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 beliefs of the management that if they've got a bit of paper then they then everything's okay. And uh, you know, and, and it's it's just about turning that round. But how do you how do you still, you know, how do you still get to to a situation where the people that are doing the job understand the controls, or you've made sure that you've got the right controls there, you know, without without cluttering, cluttering out the most. So I think I think I mean part of we could have a very simple answer, which is just you know design the controls and design the work with them, um, and that would be the simple answer, which is if 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 we whether it's user-centered design or uh, human-centered design or co-design or whatever we want to call it, participative ergonomics or call it whatever you like, um, by by working with the people who are going to be impacted by and have to actually, you know, follow the processes, you know, having them help design those, you know, motivational theory, self-determination theory, all of that psychology research says that's what we should do. Um, you build a social contract with the people and then compliance is probably unlikely to be an issue after that. So that's the kind of the short answer. Um, the The bigger problem I think that we face is that we say that 
people have cluttered their organizations because they want to protect themselves or their their liability. But I think it's I think it's a bit worse than that. I, I sorry, worse in a way that's harder to change is I think we've conditioned managers and even workers over the last 30 or 40 years to actually believe that's what creates safety. So I don't think yep. managers anymore, at least the ones that I speak to in my business, they're not putting procedures into their business because they they want to protect themselves. Um, they actually want to keep their people safe. They actually just think that's how to go about doing it. Mm. So we actually find we when you when we do it non-judgmentally and we just ask people like, you know, why are you saying you want us to come in and run an assurance program for you? Oh, to make sure people are following the procedures. Well, why is that the most important thing? Um, oh, to keep our people safe. Okay, well that we agree on that. So let's mm. let's go backwards now um, from there. And and we I think we've found that um, at least in our in in Australia, I suppose, and in the companies we work with, is um, senior management care about keeping their people safe. They just think all of the traditional ways of doing safety is the way to do that. So it's about um, you know it's, it's so much about then changing changing that thinking, isn't it? Changing that thought process on what yeah. you know because they probably don't follow that process anywhere else in their business. You know, or not not with as much rigor anyway, is it? You know, they you know they. they you know, other bits of the business they, they allow you know they allow people to be adventurous and and to take chances and you know in things like sales and all that you know it just uh, you know it's go go out there and you know and do what you have to do to to win the work yeah yeah, yeah. then from an alpha safety perspective all of a sudden everything gets drawn together and tightened up and and people are almost strangled by it aren't they well they can be and look yeah. I think we do things in safety which we don't do anywhere else in our business exactly what you said like. I was talking to, you know, the sorts of conversations that I have with with executives is, okay, you're setting zero harm as your safety objective. Mm. I assume your business strategy is don't go broke. Mm. Like, you know, and they go, well, no, that's, no one can engage in a business strategy that says don't go broke. We're going to have a strategy that puts all the things in place so that we don't go broke. I'm like, well, why don't we do that for safety? Yeah. Um, put in all the things that we, and so when you talk to a sales team or something about, again, you don't, you don't say, oh, we never want to lose any any bids. Of course, you don't want to do that. That doesn't need to be said, but you're actually working on, like you said, how you take risks and how you support your people to um, to win more than they lose. And I mean, that's what Safety 2 says. I mean, Safety 2 just says at its very core, what Eric Holnagel says is, how do you support work to be more successful more of the time? Um, so yeah, I, I actually think we've got to do a fair bit of unlearning in safety and we've also got to... Um, ask ourselves the question about why we do certain things in health and safety that we actually don't do in other parts of the business. And, and, you know, and I suppose, you know, there's a, there's a big responsibility on some of our, some of our institutions here, I think, isn't there, to, uh, to think a little bit differently. You know, and I just, I'm sorry, I, I should have come out with a, with a vision zero or something like that, which I don't know. It just seemed to, seemed a little bit, a little bit strange. Yeah. Yeah, Irish. So, so between the regulators, so the HSE executive and, and the regulators all around the world, and the professional associations um, that I sort of Irish is a part of, um, the industry associations like you know um, UK Oil and Gas and um, Step Change for Safety and all of these types of things. There's this, the few ones that I'm familiar with in your part of the world. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of responsibility on those institutions to be kind of like supporting moving forward but i don't think they're the ones the regulators or those institutions are going to be one the ones that drive the change um industry drives the change and so 
you know, safety professionals inside businesses that are prepared to be a bit innovative, I think are showing the way forward now. We're actually seeing the organisations that are that are moving forward in this space. Um, and every month I seem to have a conversation with, a, you know, a bigger and bolder company that's stepping into into different views of safety, you know, like major some of the world's largest airlines um, and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the world's largest mining companies and things like that that are going, you know, we want to pivot. We... Yeah. Um, we we want to do this differently so mm. i think industry will change and then the institutions will come in behind mm. um yeah no it's um you know it it needs to be it needs to be the business you know that's uh yeah. you know and, and ultimately because because it needs to be the businesses and these the the, the 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 companies that want to do it you know because you this you you can't in you know you can't impose stuff it needs to be it needs to be what people want to do doesn't it I think necessity becomes the mother of all innovation, you know, and I think yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting time now with the economic challenges around the world and the um, the social challenges in parts of the world, the uh, the health challenges in parts of the world. The um, a lot of organisations in a lot of in a in a lot of places will be asking questions of what do we actually really need going mm. forward, and you know, I think this happened with. Um, I think I saw this. Well, I, I believe that I saw this with the quality profession, um, maybe a decade ago, where all the quality directors and a lot of the quality managers are uh, are gone because company realised that companies realised that just all those the ISO certifications weren't really preventing their their quality issues. And um, you know, I think companies will look at safety and go, "I've got two hundred safety people, and it's costing me, you know." 15 million pound a year to have all of these people and my incidents have been the same as they have been for the last 10 like do i need all of this and you know i I think the safety profession has got to be in front of all those questions we've got to we've got to know what we do for organizations how we do it the value contribution that it makes Um, otherwise i think people might make decisions about the usefulness of the profession without us do you think um do you think there's still a a role for the term health and safety you know, or do you, you know, because, or do you think that, um, you know, you know, successful businesses and successful organisations are ones that, that that basically look at look at how they run their businesses holistically, and you know, and and I suppose, you know, if we if we're trying to to not compartmentalise health and safety and have it, you know, have it sitting in its own little box, but make it part of the way that we, the way that things are done around the business, you know, it's interesting, you know, do you think there's a there's a, a need to to just change the name totally and call them call them enablers or you know learning learning professionals i don't know look i think i think there is a i could make an argument both both ways um i'd like to believe that there's there's that health and safety is kind of such an important outcome for the people within within companies and there's there's you know huge value in there being a specialist department that is putting putting effort and resource and, and, and challenge in the organization to make sure that that outcome is being delivered. I think mm-hmm. there's, there's a, there's a huge, um, there's a need for that. Um, how they go about doing that, I think should be very much aligned with the, a different type of role, which might be an operations improvement specialist or something like that, which seeks to understand the way the company functions and how to make it function more safely, more efficiently, um, more reliably. So, I think what I'd like, what I'd probably, a long answer again would probably be that, you know, I'd like us to retain health and safety as an mm-hmm. important value or topic for an organization and, and as an outcome that we try to achieve and with a team that supports it. But I think our health and safety approach needs to be far more operation centric than, than health and safety sort of centric. 
One of the um, um, one of the areas I think that that's really important is is about getting as an, an environment where there's lots of openness and trust. You know, what, what do you see as the as the barriers to that? What are the, what are the things that that stop businesses from you know from developing those called those, those kinds of environments? So, if companies could improve one thing for safety, I'd say that that's it: open communication. If you end up in a situation where anyone in the company feels like that they can say anything to anyone else in a in a you know, respectful sort of way, but in a way that there's no barriers to flow of information, uh, fast, unfiltered flow of information from any part of the company to any other part, including from you know the shop floor to the CEO, then you're going to be able to make better decisions to run your business and better decisions to to manage health and safety. So I think it's hugely important. I think the barriers are. Uh, long and complex. I think a lot of organisations have to get I'm over. I'm not asking you any difficult questions today. Uh, no, no, that's good. I just every, <laughs> Sorry. it's almost like it's almost like every question that you ask, I go, we could do a whole podcast and discuss this. Um, like, and I'm trying. Maybe, people maybe don't usually get short. People don't yeah. usually get short answers out of me. So um, <laughs> because they're usually very complex and context dependent questions. But uh, mm. look, uh, I think it's it's. The retraining required of organisational leaders for the 21st century has to happen, and and I, I found in a lot of my experiences where, and this is of no disrespect to anyone, um, you know, a lot of the people in senior executive roles and on boards are, you know, they they applied their trade at middle management level in the 1980s, yep, you know, or, or the 1990s, and the world was very different. Um, the, the organizations were different and you know there wasn't even an email until the mid 90s or something so so let's let's just remind ourselves that um that if if those people are, are, are making decisions about how you know how best to manage the operations of the business then we're going to be you know their experiences are from from decades ago mm. and i think that creates some challenges for how to manage an organization today in in the present um and and that's probably what i what i'd say makes it hard for open communication and 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 trust and things like that because that wasn't the way that organizations were run um 20 years ago and they didn't and in some ways i mean this might be a bit of a i wasn't working then so it's a bit unfair for me to judge but maybe they didn't you know processes were simpler technologies were simpler yeah it would have been good but it wasn't critical and today it's critical that you've got trust and open communication because the potential for things to go wrong really fast is is, is greater today because of the way that our systems are, are designed and the technologies that we've got. So somewhere in there, I don't think I answered your question, but um, oh, I, think but have, I, think people, I could suggest people to get on your podcast to talk about just culture and trust and psychological safety who'd do a better job than me. Right. Yeah. No. No. That's um. No. Um. No. That's really. That's really. That's really great. I mean, I. You know, I'm just sitting there, just just thinking about what you're saying there, and you know, and I. I, I suppose use my my children. I've got, I've got children that are uh, you know in their early twenties, and um, and it's it's just been really. I suppose it's really interesting to see how they how they they communicate amongst their friends, and and then and then a couple of them that you know are now sort of working in organisations, and 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 they communicate with their their colleagues totally differently and it's almost like they you know they've 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 been drawn into this stereotypical way of communicating you know which is quite traditional yet when they're outside of that work environment they're, they're, they 
you know, they're using they're using social media and you know and short sharp app, you know, and Snapchat and Instagram and stuff like that. Yet, yet none of that none of that means of communicating is is really used in a, within a business, you know. And I just wonder whether we're really missing missing some opportunities there. You know? Look, I think we've got we've got um, many generations inside our organisations at the present point in time who who see and interact with the world and and communicate very differently. So I think organisations should have a whole range of different communication mediums to cater for the different kind of preferences and and norms in those different different generations. Um, I think one of the things that I try to carry, I've got kids much younger than yours, but um, I can't credit the cartoon, but there's a, there's a cartoon that kind of says, you know, with, with the child who's going to dad and going like, you know, you know, I want to have a talk to you about something to do with like how to fix Lego or something. And then, you know, when the kid becomes a teenager, it's like when, when the parent really wants the child to come to them with a big issue, uh, they don't because, you know, you never gave them time with, with uh, what you thought was a small issue, but to them, you know, all their issues were always big. And I think I use that in the workplace a little bit because I go, managers quite quickly dismiss worker um, concerns because when they're looking at the world through their big picture management lens, a worker who comes along and goes, oh, I don't like that I'm not sitting next to the window or, you know, I've got this little problem with this piece of equipment that's delayed. You know, if, if managers don't, you know, don't, take the time to care and support every person with every issue, then, you know, how do you expect to have kind of a trusting and open environment? Because, you know, the person's found it important enough to them to bring it to your attention. Mm. And I suppose that's, that's the challenge and the responsibility of management to mm. um, take the time with their people on, on all of their issues, but it's hard work. You know, it's so much easier for a manager just to shut the door and get on with doing what they think are the important things. Um, mm. But yeah, that that's, a way if I wanted to approach trust and openness in an organization was to say, you know, you have to invite people to raise issues and you have to deal with every single one. I think that, you know, so, you know, every, every issue is an opportunity, isn't it? It's, a, it's an opportunity to, to just, to just move that business forward just a, just a little bit further. I can remember, um, you know, a, you know, many, many years ago, I, I, I worked in the quarrying industry. That was my background. And I had a, um, I had a site in Wales, and um, and I, 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 th- I think I was quite forward thinking at the time, because you know, because I had what I called this open door approach to, to management. If you've got a problem, then come in the door, but and come and talk to me. But then I've looked back at that, and I thought well, that's actually a really lazy way of managing as well. You know, I'm expecting the guy at the sharp end of the business to to come out of his environment and come into mine and come and talk to me about his problem in my in my room. And I just think, yeah, well, you know, there's something, there's something wrong there, you know, and, and, you know, it's about going out and talking to the people in their environment, uh, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're about their issue, you know, because that's, that's what we need to do. That's what managers need to do. I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, it, that's a great example of mentioning something, yeah, for a long time, the management cliche, which is like, yeah, but I've always had an open door policy. But you're right. The way you've described that is absolutely spot on. Um, I also tell a story of, you know, I was working with a company that they did a cultural assessment and they, they got a low score on management commitment to safety. Um, managers didn't believe that they were really committed. So, you know, the management team sat in a room, you know, before I got involved, sat in a room and decided that, okay, we're going to show our people we're committed. That's it. The next time that there's an incident in any of our departments, the executive manager is going to jump on a plane and going to be there the next day to offer support and show that, 
you know, if something happens in the business, um, nothing's more important than safety. We're going to fly there. And then they'd done a survey a year later and they had like worse scores across the board on their culture. And so when we spoke to them, it was like, well, what's going on? And so we just went out in the field and we spent a bit of time with people and we asked them, you know, how they felt and, um, you know, all the stuff that you're not going to get out of just some survey. Um, and we came back and told that team, it's like, well, you know, you've made it worse. You should have just stayed in your office because now you've got an already cynical workforce um, that didn't think you were committed. And now what you've done is you've shown them that the only time you come and visit them is when something goes wrong. You ask them why it happened and they haven't even had the time to fix it for themselves. You never call them any other time and offer, you know, what do you need to improve health and safety? What, you know, how can we help you? And, but they just couldn't believe that they'd made it worse when they'd been flying all over the place every, every second week to visit these sites. Um, but it just goes to show how you can get this wrong very yeah. easily as a yeah, no, yes. I mean, I can remember I worked for a business where it was even worse than that. When uh, when something went wrong, the people who had had the accident were, were were shipped into the head office to come and explain themselves. You know, <laughs> oh, God, you know, it's uh, you know, it's just yep. it's just frightening, absolutely, absolutely frightening. To, yeah. uh, to, when you look back at that and you think, you know, I always like to say, you know, you know, when you talk to management, you know, as you're as you're walking away from that from that interaction that you've had with uh, you know with that with the person what do you think they're thinking about you? You know, and, and if they're thinking, if they're thinking, you know, what a, what a twat, then you, you, you were, you were better off staying in your office. <laughs> you know, oh, so. yeah. The, <laughs> the stories. Yeah. I mean, that'd be a whole nother podcast. The, sto- <laughs> the, the stories of what not to do um, in trying to improve health and safety. But I mean, what I would take out of that is, you know, rarely now, I mean, I can't think of a time in the last three or five years where I've come across a management team that didn't care or didn't want to get this right. The challenge that organizations face, and this goes back to the unlearning that I mentioned earlier, is that um, it's a problem of execution. It's not a problem of commitment. Mm. Um, Pretty much in in all aspects of health and safety management, I see in organizations, whether it's we've got too many procedures or whether it's, you know, leaders aren't able to create the culture that they want to create. It's an execution issue, not a commitment issue. And this is this is where the safety health and safety profession really needs to step up because it should be our job to to show our to tr- to help our organizations translate that commitment into sort of like constructive execution no it's a uh, and it's a uh, and, and what an exciting what an exciting role that is you know it's yeah. it's, uh, it's it's just amazingly you know you know inspiring to to think that you can go and you know and and help and help organizations and and or your or your business, you know, to, to to take that step and make that difference. You know, it's just a fantastic place to be. Yeah, it's uh it really I haven't really asked a question there. I've just made a statement of sorry about that. <laughs> no, look it is and, and that's why that's because I, I I'm a bit the same as you. I'm a bit optimistic and it sounds like we're a bit the same, a bit optimistic and glass half full and I just see a world of opportunity. Mm. But there seems to be such learned helplessness in the well, at least in Australia and at least in you know for a while in the health and safety profession is learned helplessness, which says, oh, I can't move beyond, you know, our, our, our reporting of incident rates. I can't move beyond this. I can't do this. I can't do that. It's, and typically when we, when we talk to professionals in that space, we say, well, you know, have you approached your organization and, 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 you know, in a, in a really constructive way and, and put the case forward for what you'd like to do differently. And, and very few had, you know, it's sort of like, this is the way it's always done. So this is the way it's always going to be. Mm. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of exceptions, a lot of a lot of really innovative and 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 fantastically performing health and safety people out there. But I just love to see, you know, the whole profession operate like that. So I um I I, I was on LinkedIn the other day, right, just scrolling down through uh, through some of the posts, and uh, and I saw this uh, I saw this this post about this this site, and they'd had a they'd had a million lost day you know, a million days without a lost time injury, whatever, whatever it was. I can't, I can't remember how many, how many, I don't know. The number is so irrelevant. I can't remember what it was, but, but there were so many people on there just like, Oh my God, fantastic. Wonderful. Well done. You know, and it was loads and loads of posts. And I, and I just, I, and, and I, I was going to just put on, um, yeah, whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I thought, no, well, I'm not going to do that because, you know, there, there obviously there is some, there is some, uh, there's some excitement there that's been generated. And so at least they're talking about the subject. But, what sort of things, you know, I'm assuming you agree that that's not the greatest measure in the world, but what sort of things, what sort of things do you think people should be measuring? You know, what, what, what is, what are great measures that people could be putting into place? Yeah. So this is a, this is kind of a big, uh, another whole podcast. Um, so it's good. I'm, I'm so writing all these down, right? I'm going to get you back on. Uh, we're going to talk about these in detail. Don't you worry. Let's do, <laughs> let's do measures, you know, um, no problems with counting how many people that you hurt. In fact, you probably should count how many people you hurt because then you kind of know who you have to support in your business who um, who might need your help. Um, abs- offers absolute zero value for how you make decisions moving forward in what you need to do next. So, yeah. you know, by all means, count them, but don't think you're getting any um, any useful indication of the present or future state of safety in your business. Mm-hmm. Um most of the leading indicators that we talk about in health and safety, I think, are also a load of rubbish. So they're usually measuring the completion of safety work activity. How many people have done their induction training? How many audits have we done? How many actions are overdue? How many investigations have been done in the last seven days? How many behavioral observations have been performed? Um, you know, how many leadership visits have been done? You know, there's some merit in some of those indicators in terms of a connection to mitigating risk in the business. But a lot of those um, activities in your organization, you know, you might be upset for me to tell you are probably not contributing any real value to keeping people safer. In fact, they're probably just absolutely annoying people by having to do all those things. And at worst, they're probably, which we wrote in the safety clutter paper, at worst, you're probably introducing additional kind of resource pressure by giving them half an hour worth of extra stuff to do in a day and still have to do their full shifts work. Um how to measure safety. I think if, if you want to use an outcome of safety, I'd probably say the best place to go to is, is some kind of engagement survey or climate survey, which measures some of those things that we've spoken about earlier. Trust, um, communication, you know, do people feel like they're supported by their management, provided with feedback on their performance, provided with the tools and the resources and equipment they need to do their job? Um, do they feel supported um, in the organisation and so on? So, the things that leaders should be doing to provide greater engagement are probably going to have the most direct impact on health and safety of sort of any of those other indicators. But then the last part of the answer is what information should people be using to have discussions about safety in the business? And this is where I say not safety information. It'll be operational information, like you said earlier. So what I do with organizations is I say, go to your finance department, um, get all your budget information, go to your production department and get all your, your production information, go to procurement, go to HR and sit down in your safety meeting and go, right, what's in the HR data? You know, where are our vacant roles across the organization? Who's resource constrained at the moment? Where have we got supervisors that are new to their position who might not understand the history and might not have the support of their people yet? You know, where have we got gaps in leadership positions? Where have we got gaps in key, you know, technical specialist types of roles? 
you know, and your procurement information, where are we mobilizing into our organization new contractors and new service providers that we haven't worked with before? Where are we doing new new activities in our business? Um, obvious things like big maintenance activities or, or construction activities. You know, in your production, um, where, where, where in our business are people 5, 10, 15% behind their annual productivity or production targets? And, and could, could there be pressure on those departments to try to catch up? And try to take extra risk in their in their operations. And you know, do we need to re-baseline project schedules? Do we need to change production targets for businesses? Who's who's underspent on their maintenance budgets, which means they might be sweating their assets and deferring their maintenance and and running stuff to failure. Um, so all this all this in, information that sits inside your business in operations and finance and HR and procurement provides just an amazingly rich safety conversation, and it doesn't give you the answers, but it tells you where in your business do I now need to go to understand, you know, whether there's safety risk that's going unmanaged. Um, so I've done this with organizations, you know, done those reviews, um, found projects that were overdue, gone out to those projects, asked the project manager. So you're a month behind your project schedule. What do you think good looks like now for your organization? And we'd be like, try to catch up and try not to hurt anyone. Yeah, okay. Well, what if you can't do both? What do you think the organization wants you to do? And then you'll get a fascinating insight into what your people actually think the company wants done. Um, but we've done that with organizations and we've re- we've brought project teams back in and we've sat them down and said, we are where we are now. What schedule, can we, what schedule and budget can we agree on for the rest of the project and take all that goal conflict out um, for the whole rest of the duration of that activity? So I think that is, is a way of thinking metrics going all lagging metrics are, are pretty useless all leading metrics that look at the completion of safety activities are equally pretty useless the only quantitative metric that might offer you some insights is probably some kind of engagement or, or climate type of metric um, but if you want to have a real discussion about safety uh, go get your operational um, information because that's kind of what's going to tell you where to look next that's wonderful you know, I've just started, you know, I can remember I, I used to run a uh, run a site up on the Scottish borders um, uh, many years ago, and um, and and we, we used to measure the uh, the the maintenance uh, uh, budget by pence per ton. Okay, you're allowed to spend so many pence per ton, and uh, and I can remember taking it from uh, taking it from like sixty p a ton up to like ninety five p a ton. And um and and I was really proud of that, right? And uh, and I can remember one of my uh, one of my colleagues saying, "But hold on, you know, we're always getting we're always getting pressure on to keep the cost tight, keep the cost tight." But I said, "But I said, but I think we're, we're I think that's I think that's what it costs to do it the right way." And you know, and and so when you you know almost when you have these budgets set by by the people in you know it, who are away from the operation, you know, it puts such a it potentially puts such a constraint on their business. That they, um, you know, that they then they then make the wrong calls because, you know, because they're having to try and fit what needs to happen in a into a false world almost, you know. And it's about, you know, it's about giving them, it's about giving that, you know, when we talk about openness and, and honesty and trust, it's about having the trust that the the the, the management are going to run the site for the for, for for the right amount that it's going to cost, and they're not going to just waste money, you know, and it's yeah. going to cost what it costs, but you know, it's it's you know, we're going to do it the right way. And I think I agree with you. I think um, I have a saying that I, you know, we know is with enough time and enough information and enough resources, you can solve anything. 
Mm. You know, but where you where you're actually short on time, short of information, or short on research resources, then your risk starts going up. That's why operating theaters are hard. That's why cockpits are hard. That's why sort of complex processing facilities are hard because you're either constrained by time, or constrained by information, or constrained by resources. So you know, that's where managers in organisations have to think about. You know, um, you know, how do we balance those those things for our people in the field? And and I suppose coming up with a plan with people then what you're interested in is where where your operation is deviating from that plan. So I don't know if 95p per tonne or 60p per tonne or 30p per tonne, I don't know what the right answer is. No. But if I planned on spending 75 and I'm only spending 15, mm. then something's not going to plan. Yeah. And yeah. and that's where you know you want to dive in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think and I think that's all an indicator can ever do. It can only ever be that. It's an indicator. It's it's an indicator of where to look in your business. Um, but people are expecting these these indicators to basically just lay out for on a plate for them um, what to do next. And I tell people, an indicator is only ever going to give you a question. To, a question, it's never going to give you an answer. Um, so make sure your indicators are giving you good questions. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, and if your question is a- where might so- where if your question is where might someone get hurt next? Yeah, looking at the LTIs from last month isn't. Isn't, going to isn't raising that question with you. No, um, so no. find out what he's going to give you that question. And looking at where, you know, again, it's, you know, where, you know, where is that, where is that pressure point building within the organization? And, and if you can, you know, if you can continually, if you can continually be challenging, you know, from as a health and safety professional to, to, to look and find out where that, where that pressure point is, then, yeah. then that's, that's the best time that you can spend as a business. And I don't want to, and I don't want to oversimplify, um, you know, complex accidents that have occurred in the past. But you know, we know goal conflict um, is a is a contributor for major incidents. We know having having resources or or procedures or systems of work that don't match reality uh, are a big contributor to incidents. Um, you know, we know these we know these things, but we don't. They're not the things that we tend to be prepared or able to or willing to tackle as a health and safety um, professional. So, you know, I think I think we've got to do more to help our organisations understand that safety isn't created by all the kind of safety paperwork that gets pushed around by the health and safety department. Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's, it's, it's taking such a, it's taking such a different approach to how you, how you interact with the other senior managers within the organisation, yeah. you know, and becoming, you know, becoming, a more in, it's, it's becoming a more inclusive more inclusive group of people isn't it you know and it's hard like don't get me wrong it's um i, I might say it as if it, it's quite easy and i do i do think the answers aren't aren't overly complicated mm. but i don't underestimate the challenge for health and safety professionals in their organizations to reorientate their roles like this i spent seven or eight years in my last organization incrementally reorientating roles and and approaches in an organization at kind of like a glacial speed you know a large business at one point sort of twenty thousand people um and it's hard but you're right you can sort of one conversation at a time you can you know you can you can shift shift the dial it's easy now because we can kind of carve out chunks of work and come in and push a little bit harder because we don't have to quite be as sensitive to the politics um potentially but it's yeah don't underestimate how hard it is to actually do it um but it's not a reason not to start. I think that's um, you know, I think that's one of the that's one of the areas there that you've you've focused on where you know where you know come, somebody coming in externally can help, you know, because they haven't got the 
they haven't got the the the, the line pressure. They haven't got the uh, you know the the, the the relationship, I suppose, that that um, you know they can you can ruffle things up a little bit and and get people thinking, which is a lot. Which sometimes yeah. is a bit easier from outside than it is than it is from inside. You know, you, could, you know. But ultimately, I suppose if you're if you're trying to ruffle things up inside mm-hmm. and all you're seeing is has been is a troublemaker, then um then there's a lot of work to be done on, on getting that open and trustworthy environment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and you're exactly right because if you don't have the relationship, so like you said, the trust or the credibility, then um, then you will be seen as a, a troublemaker or um, or ruffling things up. And it and there's no shortcut for building that trust and relationship. It just takes time. There is no fast track. So if you look at a company, and go well, I've got to spend six or twelve months inside the business to build the trust and the relationship, and then start to kind of shift the dial. And so it's a long term play for health and safety people in their organization if they want to make sort of significant change. Um, I'd encourage I'd encourage people to, you know, to to make a start with with whatever's within their control to actually make a start. But um yeah, don't don't underestimate the effort to change the whole company. I think um you know one of the one of the things that I've learned as well is 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 changing the the, the, the language, you know, just the things that you're talking about. You know, moving um, you know, you know, accident, accident investigation, you know, what's that all about? You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's so many, there's so many more positive ways that you can talk about, about that, that, that process, you know, and, and, and talking about learning and things like that. And that it's, you know, oh, and look, views on that. Is that it's so really podcast, practical. Yeah? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Real, really practical advice for a health and safety professional is, um, is start telling the second story of every accident. And, you know, to give an example, I was sitting in a, in an incident review meeting in an organization, which had occurred on an offshore platform where someone had, had, um, had, they had to lift a valve and, and move a valve to sort of, um, post maintenance to, to recommission a platform an offshore oil and gas platform. And they hadn't been sent the right, you know, the right spreader bar, lifting bar to actually do it. The, mm-hmm. the offshore group thought that they could come up with something and um, and so they cleared the area. They tried to take the weight of this thing. It failed. So then they just obviously called the shore and said, look, um, we've done this. And so I was sitting around the incident review with the management team and they were saying, this person should never have done this. They didn't follow the MOC. They broke a life-saving rule, all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the whole conversation was about, oh, well, we'll, we'll remove this contractor and um, the problem's gone away. And so I kind of launched in in the middle of that to let me tell this story in a different way. You know, we've got a we've got a team. They're offshore for three weeks to do a job that should take six. The engineering team hadn't provided the right specs to the procurement department. We'd sent them the wrong bar. They tried to make a go of this. They created a completely safe environment around the task. They they'd done a perfect job. The only thing that failed was that we'd failed them by not sending out the right equipment for them to do their job. Mm. So I think. Safety, health and safety professionals, like you said, can language is really important. And the way that we speak as health and safety professionals, if we're speaking about non-compliances and problems and you know, people who who aren't doing the right thing, if we're joining in that management speak, then we're kind of part of the problem. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 you know, say it's opportunities, it's uh, you know, learning, you know, learning events and 
and things like that. You know, I, you know, what we're trying to, you know, and again, it's, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 53 now and, uh, um, you know, I've been around a long time and, and, and it's very, very easy to, to, to find yourself falling back into, into some of those, those, those older traits, you know, when you, you know, cause I suppose, like you say, it's this learned, um, it's this learned, learned way of doing things that you've had for, for so many years. And it's, a, it's just about as, as an individual, you know, me as an individual to, to com- continually challenge myself, you know, to make sure that, that, that I'm, that I'm talking in the right way to the people that, uh, you know, that I'm working with. And I don't think I answered one of your questions earlier about risk control effectiveness. And we still need a lot of stuff that doesn't get talked about with some of the new view ideas. And, you know, that's what we, that's why I tried, that's why Drew and I have been doing the safety of work podcast, which goes to the evidence base, as opposed to having a theoretical argument about say safety one versus safety two, for Mm -hmm. example, Um, Mm -hmm. we kind of go to the knowledge base more than the theory base. Because I think that kind of helps um, kind of arbitrate between all of these different theoretical perspectives. Um, but I think you actually, you need people, you, you need to know how people are going to do their job in a company. Yeah. So even though we don't want too many procedures or, or things, you know, we need to know how people are going to approach their role. We need dependable role performance. We We need to know that the key risks in our business are being managed. We need to know that people know what to do and how to navigate those risks um, effectively. So all that stuff needs to be in the business. And we do these projects for organizations now, like, you know, critical control programs and things like that. We just make sure they don't turn into kind of like bureaucratic exercises and and, and make sure they're valuable. But I, I think one of the problems that we've had with some of the new ideas in safety in the last 10 years, as they've been positioned in complete opposition of everything that's always been done and they're they're in opposition to some things like we talk about lagging indicators definitely in opposition to that yeah but a lot of other things are you know can just be reinvented with with um a new mindset and completely different outcome Mm. i had the pleasure of um i had the pleasure of chatting to a guy called adam adam johns um and he uh he worked. Um, he worked for, for I think it was Quant, uh, Cafe Pacific. Cafe Pacific, oh, yeah. yeah. And um, you know, and he was talking uh, talking very much about about um, you know having a having a, a, a I suppose a, a range of, of of ways of doing things. You know that uh, you know and, and again you know it was just really really fascinating listening to him and you know talking about you know just about being able to um, give people enough flexibility to be able to make you know, make the right calls, but, you know, but also having on the outside these, you know, you know, the, 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 the limits, I suppose. I don't, I don't know. How do you, do you just want to know what I'm saying there? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, you want people to be making decisions, don't you? You know, we, all the time we want people to be making decisions, but, but it's given them that, you know, that, that opportunity to be able to do that within, within the, the role that they're doing. Yeah. So, you know, Adam Adam Johns is a great guy. He's timed a bit of a career break um, with the COVID virus, and he's probably read more read more on health and safety uh, in the last six months or so than I've read um, in total. So he's a great one to talk to about this stuff. I I think um, it's been that what you've described is is said in a couple of ways. People talk about freedom within a framework, or I spoke in in a paper that I wrote about guided adaptability. Yep. And this was an idea that um, I worked on with David Woods at Ohio State Uni in the US. Um, and it was about saying that you can't give people autonomy to make 
any decision they want in any given situation. It has to be directed. It has to be guided towards, you know, the the boundaries of performance of the system that they're operating within, as well as kind of like the outcomes that you want the system to generate. Because otherwise, you just have everyone making a decision that's in their own personal best self-interest, and that's not the way to run a an organization. Yeah. You know, there needs to be a, a a move towards mutual goals and and aligned um, expectations of outcomes. So yeah, it's about having having um and you can do all this stuff with your procedures like don't tell people how to achieve a certain outcome but just tell them what outcome they have to get to is um or you know what sort of state a particular system needs to be in before they move on to the next step and i know there's some guys in the us tony mashar and um jim moranis and beth lay and people like that who are doing amazing stuff with critical steps now where they break down entire jobs and just go you know what is the four critical steps, which is like this part of the process needs to end in this particular situation. And then we move on to the next part of the process and everything else in between can be as flexible and dynamic and, and context dependent as you like, but we need to get to these critical steps to, to deliver this job. Um, and that takes a procedure from being 40 pages down to being four steps, you know, because the people know how to do the other 38 pages because they do it every day. You just got to agree that, you know, these are the choke points that that process goes through or it doesn't go any further. Um, and so there's ways of putting this stuff into practice um, that uh, that's that's in, in organizations today, it, it's being operated. Um, so, you know, it's all out there for people to kind of learn about. Sorry, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm not ignoring you. I'm just writing down sort of stuff that you've spoken about there. It's, uh, you know, critical steps. And again, you know, get if you if you can get to to a situation where, the people that are doing the jobs are, are, are telling you what those critical steps are, you know, then, then what a fantastic place that you, you have created, you know, where they are, yeah. you know, and they are, you know, they are helping, they are helping the business build the, the safe way of doing this, this, this work. And that's you how know. you institutionalize, that's how you institutionalize capability and learning into an organization um, in, in a way where you're, you're, you're capturing the really critical lessons. And so this is sort of, I think, in my, I suppose, the way I've made sense of it is this is moving us beyond critical control work. So critical control effectiveness is still talking about the safety side, which is like working at heights. What controls do I need when I work at heights? So we work with some utility companies that are, you know, they don't think about working at heights. What they think about is the job they're doing, which is like replacing power poles. Yep. And when you replace power poles, you have to excavate, you have to load shift, you have to work at heights, you have to do electrical work. And so the way we've designed our critical control um, systems means they've got to do like eight checklists to do one job because there's eight different critical risks associated with that job. Whereas yeah. the critical steps thing actually looks at work from a work activity point of view rather than through the lens of kind of like safety risk, which goes right back to our very first question at the start of the podcast. You know, if we look at it through work and say, what are the critical steps for a pole replacement, mm. you know? Um, and you're sort of building in that control in the way that actually workers think about their job. You know, what's mm -hmm. the sequence? Um, mm. What are the steps? And so I really like that. And we're sort of encouraging companies to, you know, say, if I, oh, we think we want to do critical risk control work. It's like, well, why don't you go, why don't you skip that? Why don't you skip that and go to, you know, um, the next thing? And that's the advantage that companies have now. You know, there's companies that, have been working on this for a decade or or 20 years. Um, so you don't have to kind of follow the same pace of trajectory that they've been on. 
what I love about what I love about that is, I mean, I, I've, I've been thinking long and hard about the whole, you know, this whole risk assessment process, and uh, you know, and how and how how wound up people get by numbers, and you know, and you got these five by five matrices, and <laughs> and everything's got to be in the green, and and all this all this sort of stuff, and you know, and it and it's. You know, when you look look back at it, what what happens? You know, what or what, what can happen is people, um, you know, just write down whatever numbers fit, so that the yeah. job can start. You know, you know, without actually saying, but what do we need to do to allow the job to start? You know, and and then I think that's the you know that's the that's the fundamental difference, isn't it? And and I really love that. You know, you know, critical critical steps. Yeah, I I think I just want to sort of maybe hammer a point back on that on on that piece that i that i said because i think it goes to the safety profession because i approached it with one company that they had these 10 critical safety risks and when i challenged them to do it through the through an activity lens they said oh no but we've got something like 400 different standard jobs um so it'd be too hard and too complex and i go well you know that's bs you've got 400 different work orders. So what you're telling me is you can't be bothered taking the time to actually work out what the critical steps are for each of those 400 jobs. You just want to make your own life easier by only having 10 critical safety risks. So I kind of just wanted to hammer that because that's the, typically the argument when you when you take the next step. People go, oh, we've got too many different you know, important jobs. It's like, well, you find every job where you expose your workers to one of those critical risks and take the time to work with people for the critical steps for each one of those jobs and then build it into your work your work management system so mm-hmm. that every time they get a work order to do those to do that job they get the critical steps and they can build the learnings in from that job every time they do it um, back into the critical steps for the next job um, and you know yeah it, it looks harder and more complex for the safety profession but that's kind of your job mm-hmm. you know to make things easier for the workers not easier for you so sorry i didn't want to um, I, I kind of wanted to kind of hammer in that point because it was kind of, it, it irked me the other day when I had that conversation. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's great, you know, absolutely. And it's, you know, it is, you know, it's, it's about spending the time on the right things and, you know, yeah. and spending the time on the things that the people, you know, the, when you, when you look, you know, when you do look at accidents and incidents and all that, you know, the, 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 the people that are getting hurt, the doers, that are people at the sharp end of the business. It's very, very rare that you see an MD or a chief executive or an area manager get that get hurt. Unless, unless you know, when you, when area managers get hurt, when they've actually stepped into the role of the doer, it's <laughs> got to actually do something. Yeah. <laughs> so, to spend spend the time with the people that are doing the business, and uh, you know, and that's where you, that's where you're going to get your most benefit. Yeah, and I think that's one of the one of the key messages that I also send to health and safety teams now when I ask people. I ask health and safety teams sometimes, you know, I might say, who's your customer? Mm. You know, and, and nine, nine times out of 10, the health and safety team will say management. I say, no, nah, wrong. Your customer is the person who's exposed to the risk. Your customer is the worker. Your customer should always be the person who's exposed to the risk. Um, and, and your jobs to actually understand their world, to amplify their voice within the organization because they're at the bottom of the hierarchy. And, um, and to make sure you know what their life's like and how to support them to make their life easier and better. And, you know, if you have to pick a side, it, it might not sound popular, but it's your job to help management understand their workforce better. Um, mm. oh, brilliant. How are you um, How are you doing for time? I'm okay. I'm, yeah? It's at four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm, I'm, I've, got all, <laughs> I've got all night. <laughs> no, brilliant. Um, I mean, I, I'd like to, um, you know, 
I'd like to explore a little bit more if we can. Um, you know, sort of the, the, the sort of the. I don't know we've we've spoken about this a little bit, but the sort of the the the, ne- the real next steps for you know for our profession and for our our um, you know how we interact with um you know with with people and and I suppose you know just just really just trying to you know just trying to challenge I suppose the the the, the status quo that's out there a little bit and I, and I just wondered if you can give some of your thoughts about you know about about that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I um I just wrote a piece actually. Um, Andrew Sharman's putting together a book, the IOSH president, he's putting together a book where he's had like, I don't know, something like um, 150 people in health and safety around the world provide, you know, up to 500 word contributions. And it's a great endeavor. It's, it's a great idea. It's designed to be 1% safer. And, you know, there's something like seven and a half thousand people die in workplace accidents every day around the world. And mm. his idea is that if, if, we can make that 1% safer. It's like 28,000 less people being killed every day. So it's like when you look across the globe and, and, and all the different economies around the world, it's, it's still in health and safety at work is still an incredible challenge um, for, um, for the health and safety profession, for, you know, for organizations. So, so my contribution to that was a little bit like this, which is the starting point for making the profession more, more effective. Um, so, I won't, I won't go into all the detail, but I sort of gave, um, if I can remember them, I sort of gave four points. I'm reluctant to say four because I might not remember them. But the <laughs> first one is about clarifying our role uh, with our organizations. Like we often get upset because of the low value stuff we have to do, like preparing reports and doing inspections and and maybe, I don't know, induction training or something like that. So the first thing is for health and safety people kind of got to either sit together or sit down with their organizations and say, what should our role really look like? Um, what are the tasks and activities that we should perform to you know, add the most value to our companies and try to get our companies on, on board with that? And you know, that's the paper I wrote on safety to professionals, which was trying to get to the types of tasks and activities that safety that I think safety people should be doing. But you know, sitting down with your organization, your manager and saying, hey, look, this is really not much value me doing this or, or or why am I spending my time doing this? And I could be doing these other things which are way more valuable. So I think that's really important. I think another one is to um, to understand where those key strategic and operational decisions are being made in your business um, that we spoke about earlier, like, um, you know, HR, production targets, like you said, maintenance budgets, and agreeing with your organization about how you as a health and safety professional or your health and safety department, how are you going to get involved in those decision processes? So where are you going to get the, how are you going to provide your insights over what's required with those strategic and operational decision um, decisions? You know, if you're going into a management meeting for 15 minutes to present the safety statistics and then leaving, then you're not contributing to decision-making in the business. Um, so, so that's another one. I think, I, th- I think it's pretty rare for a health and safety person to feel like they can speak openly in their organization, which also is probably an, is, a, is another point which surprises me. Like I know in my career, I found it hard sometimes like to really challenge a managing director and, or to really disagree and, and, and to show that disagreement. Um, and it's even harder if it's not one-on-one, like in a meeting to be the, to be the dissenting voice. Mm-hmm. Um, is really really hard so finding out a way in your organization like we said earlier to speak openly so th- so these are some of the types of things that i think they're sort of like preconditions for safety people to be effectiveness like know your role 
know how you're going to get involved in key decision-making processes and know how you're going to speak openly um, in your organization. Like, I think there's some fundamental things like that that we need to kind of solve and then they'll be kind of the platform that we can step off from to um, sort of reorientate, improve, strengthen our role in, in companies. Mm. It's very much about, about, about f- feeling valued, isn't it? You know, you know, as a, as an individual, as a, um, you know, as a, as a professional and, you know, and being able to, like I say, being able to, to, to influence rather than implement. I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that for me is, is, you know, <clears throat> I worked for a big organization for a number of years and, and that, and that actually, I lost that. I, I had that, I had that influence. Um, and then there was a change at the top and, and all of a sudden that, 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 that went and all I became was somebody that was just almost like doing as I was told and, and that, that just yeah. didn't that just didn't fit so I left yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah look vote it with your feet yeah look I think I, I think we've either got to be just thinking about it now we've either got to be adding value or feeling valued um hopefully both mm. um and yeah I think I think you're exactly right like adding value we we've got a tool that we run that we offer to organizations uh which we built off our um, at Griffith with our safety work um, we've got a safety energy scale and a safety clutter scale that we use and we ask safety professionals to talk about you know like 20 or 25 of the key safety activities in their business and what they feel is the value contribution to you know to safety or health and safety risk reduction in their business so everything from audits to investigations to leadership visits to permit to work systems to life-saving rules to um, safety performance reporting and then they put them on a scale of one to five, which is how much does this activity influence, you know, the safety of people doing work. And it's fascinating, you know, when you get a whole department come back and basically go through with the red pen, all of those activities and say, none of this adds any value. And then you kind of go, well, why, why are you doing it? Why, are you doing like, it? Why, why, why do we do it? And, and how are we going to talk about that with the company? And, um, and surprise you at the other end, you know, that some things they find is really valuable. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, let's just take this and ask the workers now what they think. Um, and so we, we sort of help companies go, go through that. But I think at the end of the day is, is, um, is the health and safety profession has a responsibility to be able to show their organization how the safety work activities in the business contribute to the safety of work. And that was a paper that Drew Ray and I um, wrote about in 2018 where we wrote safety work versus the safety of work. And we don't critically evaluate that gap very often and neither do our companies. And, and this is going back to what I said, I think managers believe that all that safety work actually does, you know, keep people safe in the field. And the research kind of shows that that's, that's not what keeps people safe a lot of the time. David, that's, uh, that's really, that's really great. That's really great. Uh, so, so how, um, is there, I mean, I, 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 um, I've got loads going around in my head now. So, uh, <laughs> How can people get hold of you? What's um you know what's the what's the best way of people getting hold of they want to they want to find out? Yeah, look, people people can get to me um, easily. In fact, my my contact details are so um, so available on the internet. I the um, the spam filter is is very high, and the and the phone rings at all hours of the night with people wanting to sell me all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, generally to improve my financial situation um, seems to be the reason people want to call me. But um, but look, people can get me um, by LinkedIn message um, through our forgeworks.com website. 
Um, they can listen to Safety of Work podcast and feedback through through those channels there. Um, it shouldn't be too hard for listeners to find me if they want to kind of reach out and um, even just drop me a LinkedIn message. Um, let me know, Colin, how I can kind of share share your podcast and share this and hopefully we can get a bit of discussion happening on on LinkedIn or somewhere about what mm-hmm. people took out of the discussion um, yeah. today. And mm-hmm. yeah, look, um, it, um, I tend to get criticized for spending too much time just in these types of things, just talking to people and not enough time actually doing doing the work in the business, but I'm always more than happy to do that. That's, uh, that's great. Hey, look, you know, really, really appreciate your time and, uh, you know, thank you, you know, thank, thank you very much. You know, it's been really, really interesting. No worries. Interesting to you. David thank you so much Uh, a a fantastic episode really enjoyed it Um, we could have talked about so many of those topics in so much more detail and and you must come back on to uh, you know to explore some of the uh, some of the points that you've raised and for me I think you know um, you know a health and safety professional being comfortable to challenge and being being supported in the workplace to be allowed to challenge what is going on in the business I think is really really important Um, and it's about getting yourself into that environment where you, you actually feel valued you know by the uh, by the organization and then you can start to become really effective and also you know we, we touched a bit on you know whether to keep health and safety um, or, or, or not you know and I think David you know is very very much about you know we need to keep the health and safety name but but let the role become much much more of a of an operational improvement uh, expert you know the way that work is completed compared to how people in this management perceive that it's been completed, can sometimes be, or it's probably always different. And, um, you know, and, and you never follow the, the procedure and the process exactly as it's written down. And, and businesses need to be comfortable with that. You know, businesses need to build their, the way that they work to allow people to have that adaptability, to be able to, to make decisions, to make informed choices, and, and, and to fail safely. Uh, and that, for me, is uh, you know, is is what it's uh, it's about. You know, we touched on about this openness, a trust as well. And you know, and, and there's so many people that I've spoken to recently, you know, who've been talking about uh, how important that is, and, and and that is for me is is a massive, massive takeaway. So please, you know, please try and you know, develop this environment where where people can actually and can actually feel that they can say stuff and not get penalised for it. Hey David, um, you know once again, thank you very much. I hope, uh, listeners, that you've enjoyed uh, you've enjoyed the, that episode, and uh, it'll be great to uh, to hear you back on it very very soon. Bye bye now. Thanks for listening to the Interest in Health and Safety podcast. You can follow and engage on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching the Interesting Health and Safety Community, or go to www.influentialmg.com. And remember, let's make health and safety as important as everything else we do in business.